Janet. Um, I'm the Reformed University Fellowship Campus Minister at Christopher Newport University. If you're not familiar, it's RUF, and what RUF is the Denominational Campus Ministry of the PCA. So if you go to the PCA website, we're one of the agencies of the PCA. And what RUF does is pretty unique. They send ordained campus ministers to the campus full-time to reach students for Christ and equip them to serve on the campus, reach out to those who don't know Jesus, reach out to those who may have been hurt, injured, or burned out by the church, but yet also disciple those who are seeking to follow Christ and teach students how to love those around them on their hall. And that's, that's what my job is. It's a great job. And another part of my job is I get to come and fill in for Carlos and get to, to spend time with you. And what we're going to be looking at this morning, we're going to be looking at Judges 6. If you have your Bible, it'll be in the Old Testament book of Judges. And the reason we're doing Judges is I, we went through the book of Judges with RUF all last semester. We went verse by verse all the way through it in the course of the semester. And as I was thinking back on that, this was one of my favorite passages. We're going to look at the call of Gideon and what God does by calling this guy out of relative obscurity and what he does with him. We're going to be looking at the first half of Gideon. Most people are familiar with the second half with the Gideon with the fleece. You know, and he asked for the sun and I'm going to put the fleece out and the fleece let it be dry and the ground wet. We're familiar with that, but really not so familiar with kind of the first part of Gideon, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. So we're going to look at Judges chapter 6. We're going to look at the, the first 24 verses. I know that's a lot, but that's just the whole part that we're going to look at to kind of see it in its entirety. And so let's, um, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Judges chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Let me remind you again as we come to the word, this is not just some good moral teaching. This is not, you know, just something cute and encouraging for that alone. It is that, but it's way more than that. This actually is the very word of God. And we'd be very wise if we pay attention to it and listen to it. Judges 6, verses 1 through 24. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, and they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wine in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. 
And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And, why are, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Verse 19. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock so, and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, for you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we pray that you would meet us here. We pray that we would see and find encouragement in what you have done, the Israelites and Gideon. Lord, we pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts. Pray that we would seek you. Pray that you would change our hearts as we come face to face with you in, our, in your word. Thank you that you've given us your word and you've promised to meet us in it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Think back to a time in your life when you got completely lost or turned around. I mean, I'm talking just lost, completely lost. Maybe you got separated from your parents or your friends. Maybe you got lost while you were driving somewhere. Maybe you were at a conference or something for business and you were in kind of an unfamiliar city. Maybe it was this huge, big city. Maybe you went to D.C. or New York or somewhere like that, and you got kind of engulfed in the blocks and all these huge buildings and restaurants. And then you looked around and said, I have no idea where I am. No clue. Think about that time. How did you feel in that moment? That moment of the utter realization that you have absolutely no idea where you are. And your phone doesn't work. So you can't just go look it up on iPhone. Think about how you feel in that moment. Absolutely anxious, frustrated. You might even feel alone, like there's nobody around. Like I don't know anybody here, I don't know what I'm doing. Just this anxious kind of frustrated feeling. My sister, who lives in Charlotte, one day uh, was driving back to her house. We used to live in the mountains of Western North Carolina. My wife and I met at a summer camp and we lived there full time. And my, and my sister had driven up to come see us, and on the way home, she had just gotten lost. I mean, just absolutely, utterly lost. And she called my dad 
and was like crying and saying like, I have no idea what's going on. And dad said, calm down, calm down. Tell me what you see. Tell me what's around you. Tell me what signs you see, what mile marker are you on. I mean, maybe you've made a similar phone call at some point in your life. Okay, tell me what you see. My sister had driven two and a half hours the wrong way. And she had to turn around and drive that two and a half hours back to get to the point where she could then drive another two and a half hours to get to where she needed to be. Lost. Frustrated. Wouldn't you be? I mean, this is in the middle of the night. It's like 12 o'clock. She was supposed to be home by then. Two and a half hours the wrong way, only to turn around, drive that two and a half hours to get back to the neutral starting point so that then you can continue your journey. I mean, she started out the trip so confidently, but it soon just spiraled out of control. I mean, maybe we've all had times in our lives, I mean, it might even be right now, when we felt lonely, we felt hopeless, we felt frustrated, we felt like life is spinning out of control, we're looking for answers, we can't find them, we feel like we have a blindfold on and we're just stabbing blindly in the dark. Maybe we're this, we're this close to the beginning, I mean, we're just, you know, in the February. Remember back to January 1 when you made the resolutions, you're like, this year's going to be different. This year's going to be different. Maybe you're thinking, well, I started the year with such confidence, but now I just feel frustrated and lost. All the promises and hopes that I had for this year have just quickly, made, they may not have even made it out of January. And I started off so confidently, and now I'm just frustrated. Well, as we look at this text this morning and we look at Judges 6, this is exactly where Israel finds itself. Not living in confidence, but living in caves. As we look at this this morning, we're going to have two points, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time, basically kind of like a third point, kind of setting the context and intro. So when I say, here's our two points, and you look down at your watch, no, we're not going to be here till 3 o'clock. That's like my first point. Well, let's look at the context here. In chapter 4, Deborah, who's the judge at the time, and there's Barak, the leader of Israel's army. And Israel is oppressed by Jabin, who's a Canaanite king, and Sisera, who's the leader of Canaan's army. Sisera had 900 iron chariots. This was a huge military advantage at the time. 900 chariots made out of iron. And Barak sees this and just starts freaking out. Like, they have 900 chariots made of iron. We are in caves. What is going on here? Do, we, do you not know? Like, we have no huge, we don't have the chariots. They have the chariots. We've got swords and stuff, but did I mention the 900 chariots of iron? Like, have you seen those? It's kind of a big deal. I mean, he just starts absolutely freaking out. And Deborah reminds Barak that God fights for his people. And an amazing thing happens in, in, in the lead up to this, that God sends a thunderstorm and floods the valley. The two armies are kind of meeting together. And the Israelites are like, oh, what is, like, they have 900 chariots. What's going on? And God floods the valley. Basically rendering those heavy iron chariots useless. Sisera's army is routed. Sisera gets a tent peg through the head. Maybe you remember that story. In chapter 5, basically all of chapter 5 is like a victory song that recounts this battle. And Sisera did this, and Jabin did this, and there's, a, there's this great victory song that happens in chapter 5. Basically just recounting what happened in chapter 4. Canaan is defeated, and there's peace for 40 years. 
and things were starting to look pretty good. I mean, here the, here's this oppressive army. The chariots have been taken out. The, the invaders are gone. There's peace for 40 years. Things are looking good. Uh-oh. Then chapter 6 comes on. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Deborah dies, and the Judges cycle starts again. If you're not familiar with the book of Judges, a great way to view the book of Judges is there's a cycle that repeats over and over and yeah. over again. Basically, what... If you can imagine, like, judges, it's almost like, you know how the, when you flush the toilet and the water goes around and it goes around and it finally goes down? That's how the book of Judges happens. We start off with still calm waters, and then it just goes down the toilet, all the way down. It is a frightening book. I know that's, that, that's the best illustration for how the book of Judges works. There's this cycle that just repeats over and over and over again. And Pete Hatton came up with this, with this great uh, way to view it. The cycle is sin, the people, the people sin against God, then they go into servitude. There's this oppressor that comes and oppresses the people. So sin, servitude, supplication, the people cry out for mercy and cry out for grace, and then salvation, the Lord raises up a judge to deliver the people from the oppressor. So sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. That's the judge's cycle. The key verse to understand the book of Judges is actually the last verse in the book, which sounds crazy, but that's the key. And in, verse tw in chapter 21, verse 25, the verse reads, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And a lot of people look at the Old Testament and go, How's the Old Testament? Why should the Old Testament matter? Why should I care? That verse is the sounding cry of our age. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's where we live. That's why this matters, because it's our hearts. Getting back to chapter 6, in verses 2 through 5, we see that Israel is oppressed by Midian. And his name literally means strife. And they're oppressed by this man and, this, and his army for seven years. And the people of Israel are driven to live in caves because of the strife Midian causes. They had been living in the fertile valley next to the fields. Remember, they're wiped out. The old oppressors are gone. There's peace for 40 years. You have time to kind of build houses and, you know, raise crops. And 40 years is a long time. It's a generation. And they had been used to living in this fertile valley next to their fields. And in verse, verses 3 through 5, we see that Midian sweeps through like locusts, devouring all the crops and the livestock. It says that he, they come in like a, like a, a horde of locusts. And the camels are so many they can't be counted. It sweeps through. And in verse 4, we get a frightening scene. Verse 4 says, They, the Midianites, would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. Think about this. For 40 years, they had spent time raising the crops, doing, you know, raising the livestock. They had this stuff. Midian comes in and takes it, and in verse 4, we get a, a depressing scene. Everything they had worked hard to grow and save for the dry season is completely wiped out. Midian comes and steals it, and they are driven to withdraw into caves because they're afraid. This is God's chosen people living in caves. This is absolutely depressing. And as I was thinking about what was going on here, I thought about the Dust Bowl era in America in the 1930s. Maybe you've seen pictures of it in middle America where there was all this excessive farming followed by an extended period of drought. And what happened is these huge storms would roll through the plains, 
and it would strip all the dry topsoil that was sitting there. And you can find pictures of these storms that came through. They were called black rollers. And basically what it would be is all of this wind would pick all of this rich, dark, black topsoil up, carry it up, and roll it. And it would actually carry it out to the ocean. These strong winds or just these clouds would just take that stuff and just move it. And completely strip the middle of America dry. Millions of acres of farmland were destroyed and people just fled in fear. I mean, you have pictures of people who are trying to hold on and they're living in, their, in the farmstead. They have nothing and they're living out in this house in the middle of a field. And there is such wind, it is so dry. And if you've ever been to the Plain States, it is just windy all the time. It's windy. And you can imagine everything in your house has a layer of dust over it where it's just blowing through. What we see here in verse 6, we get a depressing scene. Verse 6 reads, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. We see God's chosen people hungry and huddled in caves out of fear. We look at this and we often ask, like, aren't these God's chosen people? I mean, aren't these the Israelites? Aren't these the ones that he brought out of Egypt? I mean, we remember, like, aren't those, isn't that God's chosen people? I mean, if so, why are they suffering so much? Why are they in caves? Didn't God promise to be with them? I mean, what's going on here? Israel's brought low and they cry out to God for help because they're fed up. They're tired. All their stuff's gone. Midian is stealing it. But what we see here is that God is on the move seeking and saving people trapped in caves. God is moving towards them and his plan of redemption moves on and he's reaching out to people in caves. Think back to August of 2010. I know that probably doesn't ring a bell, but maybe this will. 33 Chilean miners. Is that ringing a bell? What happened? There are these 33 guys that are trapped 17 days underground before the drill, the little drill, even breaks through. Two weeks, over two weeks underground before a bit, a little drill bit drives through. They tie a note to it saying there's 33 of us down here and we're okay. That's 17 days in. I mean, imagine how these guys felt while they were trapped over 2,000 feet underground. 2,000 feet. I can't even comprehend that. With no contact with the outside world for 17 days. They're thinking, do they think we're dead? Will we die down here? Will help ever come? I mean, after a day or two, you're kind of like, okay, we can deal with that. Over two weeks, is help ever going to come? Are we going to die down here? I mean, I think we think about what's going through those guys' minds, and we think about our own lives, and sometimes maybe we've often felt trapped in our own cave of life and circumstances, and we wonder, is help ever going to arrive? We don't see the drill bit coming. We're just in this, we're in this darkness going, what is going on here? Are we, am I, is this how life's going to be? Maybe the locusts have swept through and left you picking up the scraps in your own life. Maybe you've had too many false starts, and you just feel like a failure. I've tried and I failed. I tried and I failed. I tried and I failed. Nothing ever gets gone. Maybe you feel isolated and abandoned because of secret sin in your life and you carry around this invisible suitcase of shame and guilt. Maybe you feel like God can't truly love you because of your past mess-ups. You've, you've, you've had a big mistake in your past and you don't feel like you can ever be loved. God can ever really love you if you're we feel like the locusts have just come through our lives and stripped us bare. Well, as we look at this this morning, here's our two points that we're going to look at quickly. 
we see two points. Grace that seeks us in the cave. And then grace that saves us from the cave. Grace that seeks us in the cave. Grace that saves us from the cave. Those are our two points. Let's look at that first point. Grace that seeks us in the cave. In verses 1 through 6, we see Israel living in sin and misery. And this is an absolutely unbearable standard of living. There's nothing. They're in caves. I, I mean, how fun do you think living in a cave is? Not very fun at all. This is unbelievable. I mean, considering where they had been and where they are now, it's an unbearable standard. And in verses 8 through 10, we see a strange response to Israel's cries. Let's read that. Remember, it's sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. That's how it works. Verses, verse 8 says, Then the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So what we see is the people are huddled in caves and then here there's a strange response. They cry out to the Lord and God sends an unnamed prophet. We don't even get the guy's name. Sends an unnamed prophet to come and speak to them and to rebuke them. Thank you. <laughs> We're living in caves, and then you send this guy to come rebuke us. Thanks a lot. It's really encouraging. I'm going to write that in my prayer journal this morning. In verse 7, we see the people crying out in complaint because they think that God had forgotten them and given up on them. They think that God had left. And the thing that's amazing is we think, oh, those people are so short-sighted. We're just like them. Trouble comes, and we immediately think, God, God just must not care for me. He's gone. He's packed up. He's out of here. They're, they were short-sighted just like us. The human heart has changed 0% since the fall. We're just as short-sighted as they are. And in verse 8 and 9, we see the prophet reminds Israel of how God led their ancestors out of Egypt and given them the promised land. He said, you think I've left you? Look at what I did. Don't you remember how I led your ancestors out of Egypt? You remember that? And this is big deal. They would have known this. This is the Exodus account. Do you remember those ten plagues? Miraculous plagues? Do you remember how I led your ancestors out of Egypt miraculously through the Red Sea where they walked on dry ground and they had Pharaoh and his army pursuing them and I crashed the waves on top of them and wiped them out? Do you remember that? Do you remember how I led you with a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and I rained down manna from heaven every day? Do you remember that stuff? What we see is it's in this verse is it's reminiscent even of the preface of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who led you out of the house of out, out, of, out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, out of the house of bondage. It's, it's a reminiscent of that. And what's what God is doing here is kind of referencing and reinforcing this covenant relationship. I am your God and you are my people. It's not a new message at all. It's not like God just repackages something and sends the prophet. It's not a new message at all. It's just a call to remember that God does not break his promises and he shows grace and mercy. It's not anything new. He's just saying, look, there's a God. I love you. You're my people. But also what we see is that the prophet also shines light on Israel's sin. And we see that in verse 10, the end of verse 10. He says, but you have not obeyed my voice. Have you ever lost something under the fridge? You know, like maybe the kids are playing and like a you know, block or like a pen bounces off your shoe and rolls under the fridge. You drop a piece of paper. You know what I mean? You ever drop something under the fridge? Then you get down there with a flashlight 
to look and see, and you shine the flashlight underneath the fridge, you're like, oh, this is not good. This is not a pretty picture. You got the pet hair, you got the gunk, you got, I mean, it's just, and then like, oh yeah, by the way, your block is, the block or the penny or whatever you dropped is like way in the back, you know, with all the gunk. And then you immediately want to just go grab something to clean it and pull the fridge out because it's gross. And what we see here is that the, the prophet is coming on the scene and basically saying, I'm looking under the fridge and I do not like what I see. You have not obeyed my voice. You got, you're pretty on the outside, but I'm sitting here staring underneath the fridge and it is not pretty. This is not a pretty picture, O Israel. It's an amazing scene. And what we see is when we think about this, we think the prophet comes on the scene and immediately we think, well, judgment's coming. He says, I'm looking under the fridge. This is not pretty. And you're about to get it. But what follows for us, we think it should be punishment for sin. But instead, it's unbelievable grace that seeks Israel in the cave. God calls Gideon, who's also hiding from the Midianites. He's the fifth judge and he's a woodcutter. Gideon's name literally means one who hews or one who hacks. That's what his name means. And in verse 11, we see that Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now we think about that and go, what's the big deal? But that, that is unique and is meaningful, especially compared to what's going on. Because basically what a wine press is, is this big pit that was kind of hewn out in a rock. You know, they would take and stomp the grapes. But it was this huge pit that they would dig. And basically, it's the worst place to thresh wheat in the world. Why? Because there's no air movement. Think about when you thresh wheat. You take it, and you rub it, and you throw it up in the air, and the heavier wheat falls down, and the dry chaff blows off. That's how you thresh wheat. You throw it up in the air, and the wind drives the chaff off, and the wheat falls down. He's doing this in a bowl. Why? Because he's hiding from the Midianites. He's having to thresh this stuff in secret. And he's just trying to, he's just doing the best he can. And in verses 12 and 13, we see Gideon's response to all of this. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord's with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? And he says, The Lord has given us into the hand of Midian. Paraphrase that, if God is so good, why has all this bad stuff happened? basically what he's saying. Where are you? Satan wants you to feel like God doesn't care for you and that God has given up on you. Satan wants you to feel like you're alone. Satan wants you to feel like God doesn't care anymore, that he's turned his back. He wants you to feel alone and abandoned. But what we see in verse 14, we see God's response to Gideon. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? He says, get up and go in strength. I'm with you. Get out of the wine press and go defeat Midian. I'm with you. It's a hinge point in the passage because Gideon literally is called out of his own pit to go save Israel from their own pit. I'm going to call you out of this pit where you're hiding to go deliver Israel from their caves. It's a hinge point. And we see that by grace, God has sought Israel. He is, it's grace that seeks Israel in the cave, that seeks us in the cave. And by God's grace, God will save them from their cave through a frightened woodcutter. And that's our second point. Grace that seeks us in the cave. Now we see grace that saves us from the cave. Second point. 
Gideon feels weak and helpless. And God comes on the scene and reminds him that he's with him and he's never left. It's almost like he reorients him and gives him perspective, like when my sister got really lost. And my dad said, okay, tell me what you see. Let's find some, let's find some anchor points that we can, okay, here's what's going on. Okay, I know where you are. It's almost like he is reorienting Gideon. I haven't, I haven't left you. Gideon was feeling like somebody blindfolded and spun him around ten times. And God takes the blindfold off and goes, whoa, I'm still here. Like, I'm right here. I mean, just like my sister on the highway, the road didn't move. It's not like the highway was like moving around as she was driving on it. I mean, it stayed fixed. The road didn't move. It's just she got so anxious and frustrated and she just got disoriented and lost. And what God is doing here with Gideon is pointing Gideon and us back to himself. The biggest road sign ever. I'm here. I haven't moved. You're just frustrated and anxious and you feel like I've left you. I'm right here. Now, God's presence defines us, not sin. Grace gives us peace with God through Jesus. And just like what he's doing with Gideon, he's restoring his presence. And we get to feel and experience the nearness of God. It's a very intimate scene that we see here, but it's really strange. I don't know if you noticed the back and forth in verses 12 through 18. Here's kind of a paraphrase of what goes on in 12 through 18. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, but he's, he's veiled. Because remember later he says, oh, he perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, so he's kind of veiled. And there's this interesting conversation that, is, that ensues. There's this, strange, there's this strange greeting. Think about Gideon. He's afraid, threshing, wine, you know, threshing wheat in a wine press in a bowl. And this guy comes on that he doesn't know and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, I don't feel very mighty. I don't feel very valiant. I don't feel like God is with me. And then the angel says, go save Israel. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Really? Go save Israel. What? Gideon says, but I'm weak and my clan is weak. I'm the weakest in my clan and my clan is the weakest. Don't you know the Midianites? I'm in down here in a bowl. Like, I'm weak. Who am I? The angel says, God will be with you and you will have victory. Gideon does something that's kind of classic Gideon that we see later on. He says, show me a sign. Don't depart until I return with something. He's like, show me a sign that I want to go do something for you. And like, will you stay there and hang out? I'm going to go do this real quick and I'll be right back. And the, and the amazing thing is we would think that that would be really, like that would be an affront to the angel. You know, like, whoa, you're telling me to go wait around? But guess what he does? He says, sure, I'll be here. I'll wait. No problem. Go do your thing. Verse 19, let's read that together. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought it to them under the terebinth and presented to him. I mean, what we see is Gideon goes and kills a young goat and prepared unleavened cakes from 22 liters of flour. We think about this and like, that's 22 liters of flour. That is a ton of flour. All this took time. We read stuff in the Old Testament, we read these narratives, and we think, oh, well, he just went and whipped up some biscuits. You know, from 22, he made 22 liters of flour worth of biscuits. That in and of itself would have taken forever. He's making unleavened cakes. Roll it out, mix it, all that kind of stuff. And also, find the goat, kill the goat, prep the goat, all, you know, butcher the goat, all that stuff. That took time. It took a lot of time. But the amazing thing is we look at this and go, what is Gideon actually making? It's more than unleavened cakes and goats. It's way more than that. 
He's making a very costly meal. Think about what's going on. The Midianites have come in and swept through, and food is extremely scarce. Extremely scarce. This meal is basically a sacrifice, not only for him, but also for the larger community. 22 liters of flour that they have stored away, that he has taken the wheat and he's threshed it out in secret, then gone and ground it in secret to make flour so they can store it in secret from the Midianites. And he takes 22 liters of that stuff and a goat. Where'd the goat come from? That, I mean, it hadn't been hiding somewhere. They were storing this thing away. Basically, what we see is he gives up a goat and the wheat he threshed in secret. But look at verse 20. What does the stranger ask him to do? And the verse 20 says, And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on the rock and pour the broth over them. The angel of the Lord comes to him and says, Take all of that stuff and pour it on the ground. Go pour it on the ground. And Gideon does it. He does. It's amazing. Verses 21 and 22, the angel reveals himself. It says, An angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. What we see here is that Gideon worships. And that's what happens whenever people meet God face to face. The angel reveals himself and he's like, whoa, whoa. But in verse 23, we see something amazing. When we believe and we affirm that the whole Old Testament is all about Jesus, you know, the Old Testament says someone's coming, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel say someone's here right now. And the whole rest of the New Testament says someone's coming again and it's all about Jesus. And we affirm that and we know that. But what we see here is like Jesus almost shows up in living color here in verse 23 says, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. A message of grace. Why is Gideon afraid? Because he knew that he deserved judgment. Remember the prophet said, I've stared underneath the fridge and I don't like what I see. This is not a pretty picture. But why is it such a big deal that Gideon's sacrifice is consumed? Remember the, the fire springs up and consumes it? God is turning his wrath away from Israel and away from Gideon and is consuming the sacrifice instead. This very costly thing that he says, pour it on the ground. And instead of the wrath of God coming against Israel and against Gideon, where the prophet comes and says, the underneath the fridge is not a pretty picture. And instead of wiping them out, he takes the sacrifice instead. He burns it up. The judgment falls on that. I mean, this is what Christ does for us. He turns... God turns his anger and wrath and judgment away from us and puts it on his son. A very costly thing. On my one and only son, I've turned all of this grace and I've turned all of this wrath and judgment on him so that you don't get it. God's grace works through Gideon. He follows Jesus and he lives for him. He follows the God of, the God of his ancestors who's delivered him and he renews. I and mean, yes, he messes up in the sign of the, the fleece and all that stuff. He messes up. But he goes on and destroys the Baal and the Asherah in the second half of the of scene. In verses 36 to 40, he goes on and he destroys these Baals. And the amazing thing is, he basically fulfills his name. He cuts them down. He hacks them down. He hews them down. God sends the woodcutter to save Israel and then later to drive out the pagan altars by cutting them down. 
I mean, still he has doubts and he needs reminders of God's presence, but God is patient with him and gives them those signs. I mean, he comes and says, Lord, show me the fleece and let it be dry and wet. And God says, okay. He doesn't say, who are you to affront me? He's like, I want to show you grace and love. Yeah, I'll do that. Verses 36 through 40, we see that he still doubts and he still struggles and he's still afraid and he still needs reassurance because he's human just like us. We need reassurance. It's hard to walk by faith and not by sight. It is hard. But why should we care about Judges, Gideon, and the Bible? It's the story of us. It's the story of our sin. It's the story of our doubts. It's the story of our loneliness. But it's more than that. It's also the story of God's grace given to us through Jesus. Why? Because God did not leave us to die in the cave of sin. He did not leave us under oppression. He sought us in the cave and saved us from that cave. Romans 5 eight. while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's moving towards us and seeking us and drawing us out. Well, as we conclude, let's think about, think about the Chilean miners who originally thought that they would die in that underground tomb. I mean, it was nothing less than that. Completely cut off, 2,000 feet down. Are we going to die down here? They thought that they would die in an underground tomb, but 69 days later, they were brought back to life. Literally resurrected from the tomb. Pulled out from that, you know, they had to make that cage thing. And, I mean, I watched it live. Maybe you did. You could watch it live on TV. I mean, billions of people tuned in to watch the rescue live. We think about those Chilean miners, and those men's lives will never be the same again. They were literally reclaimed from the jaws of death. There's a song by Mumford and Sons, if you're familiar with the band. It's called Cave. And basically what the chorus says, it says, I will hold on hope. And I won't let you choke on the noose around your neck. I'll find strength and pain, and I'll change my ways. I'll know my name as it's called again. I'll know my name. I'm in this cave, and I'll know my name when it's called. My sheep know me, and they hear my voice, and they follow me. I call to them, they come. The song moves from emptiness and isolation in the cave to being called out by name. Similar like John 11, where Jesus calls Lazarus out of the cave from where he's dead in the tomb. He's dead in the cave for four days. And they said, oh, well, he's just asleep. And they're like, it's been four days. It's going to stink in there. And what Jesus does is he stands at the mouth of the cave and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out. He's raised. He walks out with the, with the bandages still on him. I mean, this is that picture and this picture of Gideon here is the hope of seeking and saving grace. Called from the cave of sin into the, into the hope of the God of grace, who knows your name and calls you out of the darkness into his glorious light. Called out of the caves to walk, called out of darkness to walk in, in light. Called out of the pit of sin into grace, into mercy. As we think about our own lives, if you are in the cave of sin and death, if you are in the cave of hopelessness and despair and anxiety, if you are in the cave of feeling frustrated and like God has left you and you just feel dead, heed the words of Jesus and come out of the cave. Come out of the cave. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and find that grace, even as we'll get to celebrate here and take this together, this meal of grace for broken people, not because you're perfect, but because God has called you out. He's called you out of the cave of sin and brought you into his bounty that you didn't deserve and you didn't earn. That's the gospel. It's crazy talk. The holy God of the universe bringing broken people who hate him into his presence 
and redeeming and restoring them? Yes, that's the gospel. And it is good news. It is good news for us as we, as we take the bread and we drink the cup. It's good news because we could have been left without in sin. But we didn't because of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a seeking and saving God. We are so thankful, Lord, that you love us and you care for us and you draw us out of the pit of sin. You have drawn us out of darkness into your glorious light. We are thankful that you do this not of anything good that we have done, but simply because you love us. Father, we pray that you would help us continue to worship you. Father, we pray that you would continue to meet us here. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for what you did in Gideon's life and what you are doing in our life right now through Jesus. Be with us and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.